David White, class of 1990, will try just about anything once. With a JD from Stanford, as well as a Truman and Rhodes scholarship under his belt, he's worked as the head of a youth development nonprofit, as an attorney, and as the national executive director for the SAG-AFTRA union, before settling on his current careers as a strategic consultant and venture capital partner. But it's his passion for cooperation and knack for helping teams to work efficiently and effectively that has served as the through line connecting all of his diverse paths. We spoke to him about his experiences in Grinnell, Oxford, and beyond, the life lessons he's picked up along the way, and how he's applied them to forge a rich and varied career while staying true to his values. For the Center for Careers, Life, and Service, I'm Maya Sharetta. And I'm Lily Morish. Stay with us. My name is David White, and I am the CEO of 3CG, uh, which is an executive coaching and strategic consulting firm based here in Los Angeles. Wonderful. Thank you so much for agreeing to meet with us today. Thank you. Yeah, we're just really excited to have you on. Um, I think our preliminary question is just, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. So I'm from the Midwest. I grew up in Kansas City. I had an interesting childhood for at least two reasons. One, by the time I got to high school, which was ninth grade uh, in that school system, I had gone to eight different schools. So um, there was one divorce, my, my mom and my dad, and then my mom moved around quite a bit to ensure my two older brothers could be in the school district that was... Um, that was sort of the best school district for them. And she was getting uh, new jobs. And so I got really accustomed to just sort of walking into new environments and figuring out relationships and all that. I I wouldn't do that um, to my kid, but for some reason it worked really well for me. The second piece that was really interesting is my mother is a new ager. She was, she passed, but she was a, a new age, like an early new age advocate, health food, uh, meditation, uh, seeing your visualization, all of that. So I got that. My father, who I'm also very close to, um, is more traditional Baptist. And the older he gets, and he's still alive, he's uh, more biblically based Baptist. So I had those two influences, and then I went to Catholic schools. So I, and, and in high school, I went to an all-male Jesuit high school, where theology and and all of that was right at the center of the education. So I had all these influences on me, but I had a great childhood. No complaints. Wonderful. How um how did you find yourself at Grinnell coming out of that high school and your early childhood upbringing? Uh, a little bit through a fluke. My closest friend in high school, his parents were educators. His name was Rich, and they knew about Grinnell. I was determined to get out of the Midwest. I also played football and wanted, and I I was, you know, above average, but I wasn't a great football player. And I wanted to continue playing at uh, school. And I wanted a thoughtful school that was intellectually rigorous, but not academically crazy. And they convinced me to go with Rich to visit Grinnell. 
And I thought, number one, I'm never going to a school in Iowa. And number two, I don't even like the name Grinnell. I don't even know what Grinnell means. So I had this crazy concoction in my mind about um, the school that I was walking into. And we went up and two things happened. One, I went to, I think it was a psychology class and all the students had these cups of coffee in their hand. And so did the professor and they had this conversation and it was one of just the greatest conversations that I had heard at that point so thoughtful, really rigorous, and just really smart people engaging with one another. The other thing that happened was I accepted an invitation to the admissions office. And, uh, you know, I was a respectful kid, but I came in pretty cocky. I, I was in my sweats and I was like, ah, nah, you know, I'm gonna have this conversation, whatever. And of course, it was exactly what the admissions office was looking for to student um, because I was relaxed and I wasn't over indexing in like academics or like, you know, where I, the career that I wanted or anything at all like that. Um, and of course it was a really challenging conversation that I had because the administrators are one super smart two super caring three. They had clocked me before I even stepped foot on the campus. They were like, you may think you're special, but you're a dime a dozen. So I had a great experience. So then I went to some of those schools on the East Coast and the environment was completely different. And I knew enough to understand that that environment wasn't for me. And I thought Grinnell's actually the, the best experience that I've had. Grinnell and then there was one other school and Grinnell gave more money um, and that was enough for me. So I ended up going to Grinnell and it ended up being the perfect place for my personality. Assumably Grinnell was a great fit, but can you tell us a little bit more about your experience here, what you studied, how you were able to live the student athlete life and maintain balance in that, in that realm? Yeah. So I, I was not a typical student athlete. I wanted to play football, but I didn't want to really seriously focus on football. But I, I wanted to be the starting quarterback. So I was serious about it. I just didn't want to take it seriously. That's usually not a good combination if uh, you're uh, an athlete. So I came on campus. And remember, I, I had come from a school and I was one of the few people in my classroom in high school who wasn't Catholic. And so I had a real issue with all the things that I was learning. I wanted to challenge everything. So I got the theology award my junior year, my senior year. I thought about actually becoming a Jesuit. So when I came to campus, I wanted to study political theory. I wanted to study philosophy and I ended up majoring in political science and I wanted to do everything. So I became a teacher at the preschool and I uh, helped to resuscitate concerned black students for a little while. And I, I helped to resuscitate what we then called the Human Resource Center, which was the predecessor to the LGBTQ institution. And, and I am an ally. I'm not LGBTQ, but it didn't matter to me. I was so interested in the whole like human resource. Like, how do you actually get to human potential and studying Marx and studying Weber and studying Plato? And I, I just thought we just get to sit here and study this. We actually get to, to drink this in and then talk about it. That's the job here. Like this is the greatest time on the planet. And of course I was in Norris. I now understand that Norris is a great hall that like uh, it's a great place to be. Norris was a pit when I was there um, and it was freezing, but um, here's why it was a great pit. 
we did what people do in your first year at college. We would have uh, either um, tasteless beer or, or mugs of coffee or what have you would be in the middle of the hallway. We'd be talking till one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, arguing with one another, laughing with one another, playing games, being silly. That was great. Um, if you wanted to write or get into poetry or, um, uh, you know, there was the the nudist colony that would run, you know, once a semester or twice a semester. So I'd be up on the third floor in the library and you could hear the sort of rumble, 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 rumble. And when you turn around and you've just got naked bodies sort of passing you by, hey, Dave, and sort of passing by. And, um, you know, I, I remember so fondly my experiences at um, Grinnell. That's not because it was all positive. Grinnell for me was a journey of self-discovery and sophomore year was my hardest year. And the first semester of sophomore year was definitely tough. And I remember at one point um, I was struggling with, uh, with who I am spiritually. Like, what is my philosophy? How do I walk through the world? And I just remember waking up one morning in November, December, it was freezing out. And my and I was in Langen Hall and I had a single. And, and, and it was a floor where um, we had several friends. We were all on the same floor. But And I had pulled the single somehow. And I just remember my window being open and frost, maybe even snow was coming in. I had fallen asleep and I'd fallen asleep without any sort of nighttime routine. I was in my clothes. I was freezing. And I thought, I have, this is actually a low point, like, like emotionally, psychologically, philosophically, I just feel completely lost. And look, my room looks like, ironically, the way my daughter's room looked today, <laughs> this morning, that's how my room looked. And I just thought, you're a mess. Like, like, dude, you're better than this. You're better than this. This we actually have got to find a foundation and get better. And so what I thought was, I'm going to use this. I, I have to find a way to use this as a springboard to a deeper, truer understanding of who I am, of being able to articulate the philosophy that I live by, and. I have to do better in school. And it was right around that time that the then president, George Drake, um, he came up to me at some point during that time. And he said, you know, me and Don Smith, who was a history professor at the time, who and both of them were Rhodes Scholars. Both of them had been Rhodes Scholars. So we were talking, you know, if you pull your grades up a little bit, you actually have a shot at being a Rhodes. That was all that he said. Now, Drake ended up being a, a fabulous mentor on so many levels. But I just met him because he was he would sometimes have lunch with students. He would just come into the, the hall. And I think right around that time, I applied for the Truman Scholarship, uh, which is a public service scholarship, and a whole bunch of other things happened. So yeah, I, I was very lucky in the sense that right at that low point, there were several inputs, mostly from others who saw me. You know, I was not invisible, which, mo which many people, are they can't say. I had people around me, in, in in particular, folks at Grinnell, who did not let me be an individual who was invisible, which is so critical. 
particularly at this stage of life, of college life. And I put some of my own inputs in there. I put some of that energy in there, even when I wasn't feeling at my most confident. And as a result, when I came back second semester, certain things started to happen. One, I got the Truman Scholarship because at that time it was a sophomore year that you got it, not your junior year. I got a whole bunch of other accolades. Um, those aren't necessarily important long-term, but those were external um, determinants that helped me see myself when I looked in the mirror and and believe, all right, so you're not nothing. So I, you know, that you've got you've got some things that you can build upon. And then, of course, the winter of sophomore year, and I think sophomore year is in part the hardest because you can't see the doorway out and it's no longer you no longer have the adrenaline of like first year and like it was, it's not exciting. You're like in the middle of the drudge. And when you're in the middle of like that drudgery and you've got to face an Iowa winter, I mean, that's a, that's just really tough. Right. So the springtime came, the buds started coming on the trees, the leaves, the flowers. And um, I just had a sense that uh, I'm not going back to that. I, I'm just, I'm not going back to that. And there's a part of me, um, it, it was a fabulous moment that qualifies as sort of not great or, or um, a valley as opposed to a peak. But Grinnell, generally speaking, and my experience on campus and as a student held both highs and lows and through all of that the community the support the embracing by the adults on campus whether administrators professors um, staff and the students i remember it all as nourishing strengthening growing and fabulous i'm a, I'm a deep lover of grinnell so that's so beautiful I, now I feel like we need to bring back the nudist colony that's definitely <laughs> yeah. languished since you've been here. Um, but I, I feel like those valleys really, like you said, they can be as formative, if not often more, than the peaks. Um, you need to have a benchmark from which to grow. I feel like that's, yes. that's so meaningful. How So George Drake led you to applying for the Rhodes Scholarship, which, as you said, you did your sophomore year, correct? No, he told me that my sophomore year, the application process happened in my junior, in my senior year. I can't overemphasize the significance of mentors like George Drake. But what's really important is it was like a water drip. For so many things that I've done in my life, it it comes from multiple people, multiple times sort of nudging you. It's the, you know, and it's the, it's that nudging. It's rarely just like a moment of enlightenment. It's, it's, being surrounded by people who are like, hey, come on, you can do this, you can do this. And so President Drake was really key to that. What was the Rhodes process like and how did being a Rhodes Scholar end up sort of shaping your career path? I attempted to apply for the Watson Fellowship. And that is not, at least at that time, that was sort of open-ended. Like, hey, if you can think of an idea of of some way that you can, (laughs) something you can do that's interesting in the world, we'll fund it. And so I thought, I want to learn massage. I'm going to learn massage in Japan and Sweden, and I got to find somewhere in Africa where I'm going to learn how to be a masseuse. And I'm going to do this. And so I'm doing all kinds of research. I was terrible at that. The Rhodes was like, give us about your background. Tell us what sports you did. That was structured. All right. I'm good with the structure. So I applied for the Rhodes almost as a secondary um, kind of uh, scholarship because it it, it uh, mapped the way that my brain works. So I applied. 
I think I only had like a three, five or et cetera. I say only, I think, you know, I think people are crazy about grades right now. And if you get a three, five, that's fine for me. But I know that I was on the lower bound, the lower end of those who were applying from schools around um, the country. And, and I, um, you have to go through a process after the application is submitted. The campus actually has to recommend you. Again, this is all dated information. I haven't uh, updated my research on that, but that's how it was back then. So you got to go through uh, the Rhodes Committee on campus. And it's professors who, by the time you're senior year, you're familiar with most of them. And at the time, it was first semester senior year, I was in a political philosophy class with um, another legendary professor, a guy named Ira Strauber. So anybody hearing this who was who was around in the 80s or the early 90s will know Ira Strauber was to be feared. Strauber, I think, thought that I was avoiding him and that I was too scared to take his class. So this is the first one I was in. And we were talking about Plato. And man, did I love Plato. And I went into the Rhodes process and I completely blew it. Every question that they asked, I was referencing Plato. And and Al Jones <laughs> literally like, dear God in heaven, please stop talking about Plato. And he literally came out of the interview after I went home and I I, I went back to my dorm. I told my, my girlfriend at the time, I think I blew it. After all this time, I think I blew it. I, I'm supposed to be a guy that can do interviews, right? I mean, I, I got the Truman. I did not. I blew it. And Jones went to Strauber and said, I don't know what the hell you're teaching our students, but you got to get off Plato. I This guy, he's insane. Like, you got to, you have to do something different. Just because it's Grinnell and Grinnell wants to see you be successful. Nonetheless, they submitted my name and they were like, fine, uh, just please don't embarrass the name. This and and start reading some other material, please. So I I was in a little Datsun 510, you know, rusty on the bottom. And so I had to take my car and I drove down to St. Louis, which is where the state um, interviews were. Two people went from the state and then um, in our region, it was either six or eight states. The two from each of those states went to regionals, which was in Minneapolis. And then in Minneapolis, <clears throat> four people from from eight different districts um, would come out. So each district would produce four. So I go down to say I'm in my car and I realize that I have mismatched my jacket and my pants. I thought I, I thought it was a suit, but it, it wasn't a suit. And uh, so this is in some ways, this is where, you know, your true character comes out. So, you know, I said, I effectively said my 22 year old version or my 21 year old version of excuse my language, but it, I, what can I do about it now? I'm in the I'm in the middle of the the drive down and I'm going to be late. I'm like I, I've timed it so that I get out of my car and go into the reception area. Um, and then I passed a Dairy Queen. And this uh, was another marker. For some reason, what went through my mind was. In life, I don't care what you're doing. You've got to take time to smell the flowers and you've got to take time to eat ice cream. So I pulled over and I got some ice cream and then I went down in my uh, little Datsun and uh, my mismatched clothes. I got out and I went into the reception area and, um, you know, 
some of my closest friends now came from the experience of the time that I was at Oxford. Just the coolest, most talented, most thoughtful people, grouping of people um, that one can imagine. But there's also a lot of gunners there. So, you know, I go into the state um, arena and nobody there has mismatched their suit. <laughs> nobody there um, uh, had sort of chocolate around uh, their mouth from ice cream, right? Those, everybody there is very serious. Those experiences, whether, you know, if you apply for anything, those experiences are great, whether even, whether you get the, the prize or not. And they're great because you have to work through whatever insecurity is going to surface at that time, whatever, whatever you're, wherever you're confident, wherever you're overconfident, whatever you're underconfident, you're thinking on your feet, your ability to maintain the smile on your face, even when something happens and you're tremendously embarrassed or at the moment it feels awkward, you got to work through all that in order to get through it. So all that is in play. And um, you go there, you got to find a way to sleep that night because you you need your energy the next day. You get up the next day. And so I was in the interview and um, uh, the, the interviews are 20 minutes. You walk in, they've got your life in front of you. That's what you feel like. They've got papers everywhere for, for the application. And then you think, you're going to make this decision in 20 minutes? That's all I get? It just feels impossible. Now, I then, later on the other side, I was I interviewed other people, and 20 minutes is all that you need. I mean, with all the paperwork and everything, you get exactly what you need. So I understand the process now. But at the time, I was like, that's bananas. So the, the woman... Uh, what the, the woman who was the committee chair, she was the lead. Um, and it was a group of community leaders from around the region <clears throat> or this one around the state. And uh, they asked a series of questions. And what was it that um, uh, she asked? I, it was some question. And I said, I couldn't think of the answer. And so my response in the moment was, I'd like to think about that before the end of the interview. Can I come back and respond to that? Can we keep going? And they said, sure, great. So it uh, gets to the end of the interview and uh, the chairwoman says, well, time's up. And I said, great, I would like to just respond to the question that you asked before. And she said, Mr. White, your time is up. Thank you. So I walked out and I was like, oh man, I blew it again. But the that committee, called me back for a second interview. And there were two or three that got called back for a second interview. And when they called back, I sat down and now I'm ready. I, you know, I had been singing Al Green. Uh, I, I have an Al Green song. Um, uh, I'm so in love with you. I'm blanking on the name of that song, but I, so uh, while I'm going there, I'm just, I'm like, whatever's going to happen. This is my final chance. I gotta sing. I gotta sing my nervousness out. Let me get some Al Green in me. I'm gonna sing that. So I'm I'm skipping in there. I go and I sit down, and w- one of the gentlemen there um, says, uh, "We see that you like philosophy. Explain the thread from Greece to the Renaissance to the Berlin Wall falling. That's just happened in Europe right now." And, and uh, help us see the connection between them. And I thought, Plato, here we come. I'm sorry, you just asked the wrong brother that question. Here we go. And man, I let him have it. 
and I channeled Ira Strawber. So Plato says this, but Aristotle says this, but and I gave the entire class, and at the end of it, I could see the smiles on their face. And I thought, well, I don't know if I got it, but I know that I left it on the field. So then I went back and I uh, got that. I, I made it through state. And then I got paired with a guy named Ted Smith, who was at Duke. And Ted was an actual theologian. And his father was a minister. He came from a minister's um, family. And we got paired. And so we became roomies. And we just decided we're not going home. We're not doing anything else. From his perspective, you go to a, a communist, godless school. From my perspective, I was like, you come from a thoughtless, religious background. We're going to argue for three days until we get in the room. And man, we just went after it. It was fantastic. But of course, what it was doing was honing our debate skills for the interview. And so we got in the interview and we both got it. So it was fantastic. And there were three black Rhodes Scholars at the time, which at the time was the highest, there was the highest concentration that came from the States. There were black American Rhodes Scholars. There were also Rhodes Scholars that come from different countries. Um, so you just get this collection of really thoughtful people but that's that was the experience of the application. What would you say the main differences were between your Grinnell experience in terms of the depth of discussion and ideas that were floating around um, and the ones that you encountered at Oxford? So, um, you know, Rhodes, uh, I'm going to tell you something that's funny. Uh, and I think this also has changed. The Rhodes Scholarship at that time was not considered the most intellectual scholarship. That was not the reputation of the Rhodes. It was for everybody not in those thin channels of like high level scholarships. Everyone else was like, oh, Rhodes scholars. So that was like, you know, that seemed like it was top of the line. But Marshall scholars used to look down on Rhodes scholars. In fact, one of my closest friends, a guy named Byron Ogeest, who, when Byron came out of Yale and his reputation was, um, Again, excuse my language, but don't fuck with Byron. Byron was literally the smartest person to this day who I've ever met. And at Oxford, Byron came out of Yale and had a chance to do the Rhodes, but was also applying for the Marshall. And the timing of the scholarship during the time that he did it, he had to make the choice about the Rhodes. And if he chose to take it, then he couldn't further, he couldn't advance further in the Marshall process. Uh, or he had to reject the Rhodes. And he went to his advisor at Yale. Uh, his professor looked at him. He said, do you want to be known as a jock or a scholar? And he said, a scholar. He said, all right, well, then go for the marshal. What, what, what are we doing here? Go for the marshal. Because the, the roads had a component to it that you had to be athletic. So I was perfectly, by the way, roads got paid more money. So I, I was perfectly happy to be a roads. And I'm not a scholar. I, and I never saw myself as a scholar. But when we talk about the community of road scholarships, yes, it's an intellectual community. But really, the mantra for the roads is um, training people to fight the world's fight. It's ironic. Cecil Rhodes was a racist and, and a colonialist and, you know, just had a terrible reputation. But oddly enough, he opened up the scholarship to different races. Now, for him, different races was Australian as opposed to British. It was other groups of folks who looked like him that weren't a part of England. But the language opened it up for Rhodes. So um, Alan, was it Alan Locke, I think, was the first Black Rhodes Scholar all the way back in like 1903. Um, and then there was a long gap until the 60s. Um, but 
from all over thoughtful people who understood that the time at Oxford was a time um, to really deepen your understanding of how you were going to engage in the world. That's the best way to think about that scholarship. And the people who I met really approached their time there in that way, as opposed to I want to be the secretary of state or I want to be an investment banker. It was more, I want to, I want to understand what it means to fulfill my potential. So most of the people that, that I had the, the opportunity, the pleasure, the gift of engaging with came from that perspective. And I would say the main, and, and that tracks in many ways, what you can find on Grinnell. I don't want to pretend to say that all Grinnell students are like that, but but that is that's a pretty common theme within Grinnell as well. Here's one big difference. At Oxford, no one feels entitled to their um, opinion. Now, on one level, that's ridiculous. Everybody feels entitled to their opinion, particularly at an elite school like Oxford, where people come in and they, you know, it produces some of the worst of those who feel entitled, right? <laughs> However, certainly within the Rhodes community, and I think as a general matter, you've got people from every different perspective and from all walks of life. One of the complaints we had at Grinnell, I'm very curious to know if it's still a complaint, um, was you don't you stop having intellectual rigor if you're just talking in an echo chamber, if you're just talking to people who think exactly like you. And if you're on a campus where the very idea that you're going to think otherwise um, is so anathema that you'll lose friends, that you lose you know your ability to uh, be persuasive at all. It, you limit the rigor that you have. And no one at Oxford that I can remember felt entitled in that way. They all had to prove whatever it was that, that they were defending, whatever idea that they were defending. So I, I had a very good friend, um, a guy named um, Adekeye, uh, and he was from Lagos, from Nigeria. <clears throat> and Ade was a debater's debater. And Ade and I used to be under a street lamp and we would sit there and we would yell at each other until two, three o'clock in the morning, debating some point. And he had this line. He would say, David White, where'd you get that nonsense? Did you get that from Time Magazine? Did you get that from Time Magazine? You sound like someone who gets your facts from Time. Oh, my God. And so we would just like we'd just be blasting each other. I mean, who's not going to love that? You get paid to do that. That's all that you're doing. And so for me, I was able to really, I went deep on philosophy. Um, I wrote my thesis on Nigerian politics. I spent a lot of time down in South Africa. Um, I spent some time down in South Africa, but I spent a lot of mental time sort of thinking about apartheid. That was right around the time that Mandela got out of um, prison. And so it just felt like there were all these upheavals going on in the world. And... Uh, and the people who were going to make a match on the world, and this is, again, another difference between Oxford and Grinnell. In, in your class, you're with a former diplomat, and, and they're not presenting as a former diplomat. They're just a student, just like you are. They just happen to have been a former diplomat. They just happen to have been a former this, a former that, for the country of this, for the nation of that. And, you know, the thing that it did for me which was a great gift. It was hard. So I had my, I had a sophomore year type experience in my first year at Oxford because I was like, um, yeah, maybe at home they see me as a Rhodes Scholar, but here 
um, that guy is smarter than me, and he's better looking than me, and she's a better athlete than I ever thought that I would ever be. They're better athletes. They're smarter. They're better looking. They're more polished. They're they're more thoughtful. They they you know they listen to jazz and the opera. I, you know, I mean, it's it's you're surrounded by by folks who are genuinely the best and the brightest. And at some point, you have to just stop comparing. Like like I ended the comparisons as a result of that because I, I was like, all right, so you're not that. But in the end, who gives a shit? I mean, you've got to find out who you actually are. And I go back to that phrase, well, you're not nothing. So your job isn't to be at the top of this and that. Your job is to actually understand who you are and to fulfill your potential. And if you're doing that, that is the basis of living well. Absolutely. Between Grinnell and your time with the Rhodes in Oxford and um, earning your JD at Stanford, how did all of these things lead you to your incredibly varied career between SAG-AFTRA and consulting and now uh, incoming at the, at the Fed? Yes. So when I, 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 was, I was not going to come back to the States after Oxford. And I just thought, uh, one, I'm off the track. There, there was there's a, a, a bit of a line in the 80s where, um, for Black Americans in particular, there weren't a lot of examples of what you would do if you were um, truly successful. There were lots of successful Black people, but in terms of the imagery and the stories, there wasn't easy access to it. There was no internet or web. So it was mostly sort of our own experience. So there were doctors and lawyers and politicians and things like that. And and so, you know, it was Bryant Gumbel was one image. There was Martin Luther King. And then there was the, um, you know, it was Jesse Jackson. And then there was the line, you know, you're, boy, you sure are articulate. You're going to be the first black president. So I, you know, there was this thing of, wow, you're the, you got a Truman, you got a Rhodes, you're going to be a great politician. And I sort of realized during my time at England, um, no, I'm not. I, and actually th that doesn't nourish me at all. And I don't know what I want to do, but I know that I want to be authentic. So I took up the saxophone. I started playing the saxophone and I really started writing. And so I thought the first year out of here, I don't, I don't have anything to do at home. So I'm going to go live in Barcelona and I'm going to um, play the saxophone and I'm going to write. And so I got to figure out a way to do that. And uh, I was down in France with my former French family who I had lived with my junior year at Grinnell. And um, I was in their basement watching the election in 92. And there was this guy, Bill Clinton. And we all have, you know, people have very strong opinions about Clinton now. Um, but at the time, this guy had figured out how to beat the Reagan-Bush machine. And he was talking about community policing. And he was talking about empowerment zones. And he also for what it was worth, was a Rhodes and a bunch of Rhodes were going to DC. And I thought, you know, I'm going home. I I, actually, I want to be a part of the Renaissance, but I don't want to go to DC and do policy. I want to get in there. I want to do it. So I went back to my hometown and I didn't have a job, but I had worked with a guy in the you know, summer who was, was sort of a unique um, character and he was helping nonprofits access federal funds. And he had read about me getting the roads and he just called me out of the blue and said, would, would you work with me for a summer? And so I did. And he turned out to be super great guy and kind of a mentor. So when I came back, he contacted me and he said, there's this little neighborhood based coalition in Wyandotte County and Wyandotte County to Kansas City is a little bit like uh, 
you know, the old time reputation of like an East St. Louis and a St. Louis. It was called Wyandotte County Youth Net. And it was to create a network, a better network for young people. And it had three different school districts and the library system. And it had the YWCA and YMCA and other established organizations like that. And it had a series of activists. And um, there were 52 applicants and I got the job. But why I got the job? It was because these people couldn't stand each other. And I was the only sucker who didn't have a group so against me already that they blocked me. So somehow, so I'm walking into this thing thinking, great, I'm going to, it's a, and you know, it, it was just a little organization. I it was the project manager. It was me. I got hired as a project manager. I got my head handed to me immediately. Like I went into, you know, the board, the board meetings, uh, everybody was there. It, it had turned into a place where the activists, mo most of whom were of color, were pissed off at the organizations, the YMCA's and the YWCA's, who were run mostly by um, white executives. And I just sort of at just decided I'm going to take the money that they've raised, that they're all trying to get their hands on, and I'm going to turn it into a 501c3, and I'm going to use that money to hire staff. And we're going to start programs that are not going to replace existing programs. We're going to have an outreach program and we're going to embed the outreach workers into the systems that are already there and have the outreach workers be the living embodiment of the network. Um, and that's how we're going to do it. Uh, and we had a guy on retainer and this guy on retainer, this lawyer helped me to think about, well, how do you build a flourishing work environment? How do you build an environment where people can actually flourish as employees? So when I got to law school, I thought the kind of lawyer that I want to be is like that. So I went into employment law. And first of all, all of my activist friends thought you're going to Stanford. And then what do you get? You're going into employment law. I mean, are you going to be a plaintiff's attorney? And I was like, no. And it, all my business uh, mentors were like, surely you're going into business law. I mean, it's the dot, it's a dot com boom. And I was like, all you people, I don't care what you say. Here's what I want to do. I want to do employment law. I'm going to a big law firm. I want to get trained in real law. And yes, I'm going to work with employers because I get to be the advisor to help people figure out how to build an environment where people can flourish. All right, two years at a big law firm, that's enough for me. I was in the office every morning at, by six o'clock in the morning. We didn't have any kids. And, uh, you know, I would be home at 10 p.m. Like, that was enough. But I turned to um, uh, my, at the time, she was my fiance, and she had come out with me. And uh, I was like, the big firm salary, all that's great. But I know nonprofits. I mean, and oddly enough, my experience at YouthNet, which we then turned into Youth Opportunities Unlimited, YOU, meant that I was older in law school and uh, older when I got out at the law firm and had experience that most lawyers don't have of running things. So I immediately, by the partners in the law firm, they immediately were like, we sit on the boards of several crazy nonprofits. They're crazy. We don't understand them. Here, take this law book and go in there and figure out what's going on and then bring the problems back and we'll teach you the law. So I early on became a general counsel to a bunch of nonprofits, all of whom thought, well, the guy's at O'Melveny and Myers, he must know what he's doing. So they treated me like a real lawyer. I didn't know what I was doing. But let this be a lesson for all students of Grinnell listening to this. None of it's rocket science, except for rocket science. Get in the office early, read, figure it out, talk to people, be open. You'll figure it out. And that's what I did. 
And I got assigned to a new client, the Screen Actors Guild. So I went in there and within eight months, the general counsel, a guy named Mark, called me and he said, um, we need someone who can run things and we need someone who can absorb politics. And most lawyers don't build that skill in law school. So I took the job. I was in the office before people in our New York office got to the office. I mean, I was in there early and I stayed late. Those jobs are they are just fantastic. Like I was a kid in a candy shop until it's time to leave. And you also have to know when it's time to leave. And so I left. And I decided I was going to start my own business. And I got an investment uh, with a guy who ended up being a fraudster. And he tanked in 08 when the economy tanked. And right at that time, SAG called me and they were like, we know you got to go get new investors, but please come back as CEO and just get us out of this ditch. We're in a terrible mess. So I, I didn't even get paid. Of course, my wife was like, I'm sorry, what? I, you, what do you mean you're not getting paid? And I was like, ah, it's all going to work out. This is fun. So... I had a blast. It was great. I ended up staying longer than expected. And by the eighth year, I, I would have gone. But Susan, my wife, got sick and she had brain cancer. So I had two years of caretaking. And so the senior team was able to basically take care of things. So I didn't have to leave the job and I could do I, I could really do a full job of caretaking. We, we cared for Susan in our home. And following that process was when COVID hit. So now I can't leave because you got to get the organization through COVID, which we did, came out. I had left, but when I left in 21, um, so now I'm out there and I've got some money. I'm a senior consultant for SAG-AFTRA. Then I, I was sort of free to like take all of this experience and, and learning and to find new ways to apply it. So right around that time, um, I had been contacted by the chair of the San Francisco Federal Reserve, a guy named Barry Meyer. So Barry called me. And he said, I want you to I, I want you to come and be a member of the Federal Reserve Board. And I said, Federal Reserve Board? What do I know about the Federal Reserve Board? I mean, if if Cliff Reed, my first economics professor at Grinnell, even got whiff of me going anywhere near the Federal Reserve, it, he he would call the police. But I went and uh, I got on the board and I'm remarried. And my wife, Lorenza, she's a Berkeley grad. And um, treks up to Berkeley as sort of like a spiritual trek, like at least once a year. So we went up there. And so she said, you know, that cheap school that you went to at Stanford, surely you've got somebody up there that we that we can meet so I can meet some of your friends. And I hadn't thought about um, Clint Corver, who was a Grinnellian and who was on the board of trustees at Grinnell with me. And Clint and his wife, Miriam Rivera, have this fabulous um venture capital fund, uh, Ulu Ventures. And so I contacted Clint and I was like, hey, what are you doing for breakfast on a Saturday morning? So we went up there and to my surprise, Clint turns and looks at me and he says, you'd be really good at venture. Now, if I had been there on my own, I probably would have said something smart like, dude, I don't know anything about venture at all, I, I, but I'm with Lorenza. And so the last thing that I was gonna say is, dude, I don't know anything about venture. I was like, yeah. That sounds great. Let's do it. So I ended up becoming first a venture partner, which is a title that means we're we're testing you out and giving you some things to do. I'm on the Federal Reserve. And so you, you also see the theme of relationships, right? You keep these relationships because you're helping people. They're helping you. The relationships that you build right from Grinnell, you keep these relationships and that's how you build a career. So at this time, I suddenly, my profile turns into like this big money guy. But at a certain point, I'm setting aside things that I want to be involved in in order to pursue these jobs. 
And it just seemed, it started to seem ridiculous to me. Like, I actually know what I want to do. The thing that I love is working with team members. I love helping to build people. I, I love this concept of flourishing. Now I coach, I consult, strategic planning, team building, things of that nature. Um, I do public speaking. I'm doing some writing. Now think about the early part of this podcast and what I told you I wanted to do. I wanted to do saxophone. I wanted to do some writing. I wanted to do development, right? So I'm doing a lot of that. And the board work that I do, the work that I do with the Mayor's Fund, we're focused on homelessness in Los Angeles. I mean, this is in many ways the epicenter of homelessness, certainly in California, but even across the, the country, we've got a real problem. The Federal Reserve is at the center of global macro the macro economy, right? I mean, um, there are a couple of other boards I'm on. And so between the board work and the work that I'm doing through my firm, you know, I'm in a good place. And it all to me reflects the opening journey that I talked about before, which is you got to look within and find out what you're about and who you're about and how you want to walk through the world. And that really is the start of doing good while you're doing well, all the things that we learn that it's important to strive to do, that's where it comes from. Most of my great experiences in Grinnell, I definitely had great classwork experiences for which I'll be forever grateful. But so much of what took me to the next place that happened outside of the classroom. And it's the relationships with the mentors and the older people who were on campus that were far more pivotal to my being on an escalator from floor one to the next floor up. That had nothing to do with my grades. It really is true. What I learned from Grinnell is how to think and how to write. So by doing well there, you basically are sending a signal. Yes, the person takes seriously the work in front of them at the time that the work is in front of them. And that's who I'm looking for. But the grade, I don't ever want to hear a student talk about that. And to the degree that students are in the classroom focused on that and not focused on so many resources that the campus makes available, then that would sadden me and I would be concerned about that. As a final point to this, I really, I, I sucked at the saxophone. When I was in England, what I thought was, man, how much time did I waste when I was at Grinnell? And for free, I could have taken sax lessons. Because if I had taken saxophone lessons for four years and then had continued with the practice, well, then maybe I could have realistically gone down to Barcelona and scrummed up a living. Uh, now, I'm not sure that in the end that would have been a good decision, but it would have increased the alternatives in front of me at the time that I was making a decision. And so, you know, I would leave you with time is really precious. I lost my first wife. She was 49. And Susan was a force of nature. The absolute last thing that anyone could possibly imagine was her leaving the planet earlier than the rest of us. Time is really precious. Don't waste it. And certainly don't waste it focused on A versus B. I mean, unless you really have to do that for the MCAT or for, you know, if, if it really matters for a particular thing, allow yourself to have anxiety over the grade. But for the most part, have anxiety over whether or not you're really building your potential. That is really where the juice is. That's really where your success is going to flow from. That's where your joy is going to come from. That's where your sense of a flourishing life is going to come from. And so I hope that the evergreen beauty of Grinnell College 
includes that. Let your values and priorities lead, and you may find yourself in places you never expected. This episode was produced by me, Maya Sharetta, with help from Lily Morish. You can find more episodes on career.grinnell.edu or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Going Forth Podcast for updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening.